0: changing the world of work isn't about tactics it's not about meetings or metrics it isn't about the benefits perks or opportunities it's about being brave enough to put love first everything rises and falls on leadership so as leaders we're the ones who have to make it happen this is the love in action podcast and here's your host marcel schwantez
1: Welcome Love and Action Nation and the world to episode 38. If you're new to the conversation, pull up a chair because here we get to have captivating conversations with the world's top thought leaders, executives, best-selling authors, and influencers about, wait for it, the power and impact of love. Hold on as in love, the verb, not the squishy feeling. I mean, I love my wife, that's the squishy feeling part. We're talking about a totally different kind of love. We're talking about love as action that is packed with positive energy, intent, purpose, and connection. Love that empowers people to be and do their very best so that businesses thrive and profit. So love in our weekly conversations is what I call the new competitive advantage. So glad you could join us. So about a year ago, I had the privilege of presenting at an event that many of you listening are familiar with. It's, it's caught fire, it's gone global. I'm talking about the Humans First Club. If you're not familiar with the Humans First Club, do me a favor right now. Pause the show, pull up a browser, and type in humansfirst.club, humansfirst.c-l-u-b. If you see the hashtag humansfirst floating around social media, this is why it's because of this worldwide movement to make humans first in the workplace, in business, and in our communities. And Mike Vacanti is the founder of the Humans First Club. And he's back. (laughs) He's back on the show for the second time. He's, by the way, the first guest to have appeared twice on Love in Action. But this time, he's here to talk about his brand new book, Believership, just released last month. So, besides traveling the world, putting together humans' first events, Michael Conti is an in demand speaker and a consultant who advises and mentors CEOs. And in previous executive roles himself, Mike managed mergers and acquisitions and integrated companies with hundreds of millions of dollars of revenues and thousands of people on global teams. He's seen a lot, he's done a lot. So this is gonna be fun because Mike is also a good friend and I've gotten to know him well and he is someone I deeply, deeply respect and admire. He's a mentor, He's a kindred soul, and I learn from the man all the time. So it's great to have you back, my friend. Welcome back to the Love in Action podcast.
0: You know, I'm very excited to be here, Marcel. I love every conversation we have an opportunity to share. We've spent great time together live in these events, and um, this is just a great joy to join you here. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on the 38th episode.
1: <laughs> Thanks Mike. So much has happened uh, in the last year, the last year, year and a half for you. I mean, it's been a whirlwind. So let me start with this. Looking back, what are you most grateful for on this journey?
0: The energy and power and confidence that people are pouring in to my life mm. that, um, with with each relationship, each interaction, you know, I feel feel fueled in purpose. Yeah. And honestly, Marcel, I feel that love from people. Mm. And the possibilities that opens up is something I'm
1: truly grateful for. I'm dying to talk about this book, Believership, but catch us up a little bit first on that recent book launch. You were up in New York City with Claude Silver of Media. It was a party. How'd it go?
0: It was amazing. So again, the people that, that showed up, I, I had family with me, which, you know, made it really special. Standing next to Claude, embracing Claude, and, and being able to share that moment with her was very special to me. Um, She was there at the very beginning when we were envisioning kind of this human's first experiment that we were about to undertake and people from the event, people that I've met over time and, and new people I hadn't met came together and, and we just kind of went a little bit deep and explored some of the concepts, but then just celebrated and, and enjoyed the opportunity to,
1: to be in fellowship together. Mm, Good. The book is called Believership, the Superpower Beyond Leadership. Mike, why this book? Why now?
0: <sighs> you know, what really was compelling, Marcel, is, is uh, along this journey, as I was really doing a lot of research of current state, um, and going back on a reflection that, that um, um, actually some work I did, um, three and a half years ago, when I was coming out of my fifth merger and acquisition, and not really knowing what was next i um, i I did a deep dive into what were those experiences and what did other people see or experience and believership was a was the was the word and the concept that came out of that um, that deep dive, and that um, I hired a coach and we went through a, a deep assessment and and that was the summary of the, the information that came back. We achieved so well in those periods of fear, doubt, and chaos because people believed in each other. They believed in what we were doing. And as I've gone through a, a great learning period, the research that really stood out was that we're in trouble. Um, the path we're on right now is neither desirable or sustainable, yet we're clinging to some really old beliefs that are no longer serving us. You know, we're dragging the anchor along trying to speed up the boat, and and um, it's not a good situation.
1: Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the uh, understanding of what the word actually means. So for people hearing believership, how, how would you define that? When people can bring
0: their, their best selves to the equation, that they can engage with who they are and their ambitions, and by choice rather than command, they attach themselves to a vision, a mission, a person, a leader, and do their best work. But it's a belief in everybody moving together in the best direction. That's really what encompasses believership, and I think it's it it actually best describes what was going on around some of the best leaders that we like to highlight mm. um, and it's different than a a bucket of of traits and 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 skills and characteristics that we might put together and try to identify a leader. It's actually the action and the belief and and what happens because of that person,
1: yeah we're going to keep peeling the onion back this is going to be and for our listeners this is going to to be that kind of conversations where things are going to start being revealed and it's going to make more sense so let me touch on the the uh, the second half of that title is the superpower beyond leadership so we know superheroes have superpowers right thor has his hammer so what are the superpowers of believership
0: yeah, you know, and I play on that mythical thing, right? Because again, I think that the way we try to identify or isolate or or um um contain what a leader is is kind of a flawed myth. And just like the superhero comic books, those are myths, right? And and those are actually flawed characteristics and um and there's a whole thing about a superpower that uh, you know, superhero that you know they they have struggles they're kind of lonely and so you know some of that was in play there Marcel but I call it the superpower beyond leadership because if we get out of the thinking of the traditional patterns and the traditional um, beliefs of what leaders are we actually find the superpowers of all human beings And it's innate to each individual and they're not the same. And when we combine them, it truly does become something more powerful than isolating to any one individual.
1: Um, So it's, there's a lot at play there. Okay. So there's people listening that may be subscribing to the traditional beliefs of what leaders are. So, let's kind of put them on the spot a little bit what, what what would you say those traditional beliefs are well they're
0: they're um you know historically they are men who have been in great authority and over time those have diversified a little bit into um you know from a gender or a race or other standpoint but you know, I mean, this goes back in time to to kings, and we still hold on to that superior authority, um, all-knowing, and we are to bow and surrender our will to um, the 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 behaviors and beliefs of of that leader. And I, I'm
1: baffled by that, mm. Mm. Mike. One of your famous sayings is that we need to shift from extracting value to creating value i i mean i've heard you say that numerous times it's in the book you it's you speak it often even in your posts on linkedin but that's because you saw it firsthand how value was extracted in your experiences at the highest level human beings being exploited for profit. I mean, you were there shoulder to shoulder with some very successful leaders, right, through those uh, mergers and acquisitions. And you walked away from it all because, and here's my assumption, tell me if I'm right, because their belief system about leadership and how to do business did not align with your belief system
0: yeah that's absolutely true. Um you know, I've been through five mergers and acquisitions because I didn't stick around for one, two, three, or four and <laughs> um, and those choices were made because I was not aligned with the philosophy of the leaders, or they recognized that I wasn't aligned. They asked me to put to capitulate and 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 I refused. Um, I always felt that instead of becoming what they expected me to be or become one of them, I could never figure out why they didn't want the best of me. Um, And that's what I really think creating value is, helping people understand how they continually progress to be their best selves, rather than become the version of themselves that somebody else willfully imposes on them. And the extracting value, you know, what discourages me or disgusts me the most is how willing we are to discard people. And I see it a lot in mergers and acquisitions. Um, We look at the cost of people, sometimes in a role or in a group of people. And for bottom line gain, which is very short term, we will destroy our willingness to destroy people's lives for a short-term gain that will end up in very few or one person's pocket is just bad behavior.
1: Mm. So we have to make the assumption that people in these autocratic, (laughs) fear-based management structures aren't inherently evil and that they're good human beings. Maybe they're good parents and spouses and that many maybe do have a genuine desire to change. So why can't they? I mean, what's in the way, Mike? I think a lot of it is learned. Um,
0: I think that uh, as people progress in their career, and I know that the temptation has been there for me, it it can be hard to resist. So, you know, Mike, come join us now and here's your pile of stock options and here's your big salary and this is the bonus structure. and and this is what we're going to um, accomplish together. And then along the way, if I want to step into another level with and, and keep progressing up the the chain, I think that each one of those promotions, Marcel, becomes like passing through a toll booth, and and we're almost forced to give up a little piece of ourselves to take that next step. And and while I think everybody is, is innately good, that as we progress through that forced journey, um, we have to give up little pieces of ourselves, little pieces of our hearts. There's parts of us that become ignored or darkened to get to the top. So while innately they are good people, I think they've had to turn off some of the best parts of themselves. And interestingly, there's evidence of that, right? We see executives that hit that level of burnout. And oftentimes it's because who they truly are as an individual, who they need to be in an acting role are very far apart. And, and that gap starts to break them. Mm. And the evidence is there, Marcel. I mean, the, the average tenure of a Fortune 500 CEO, five years. It's declined. So that was the you know twenty seventeen number. So twenty thirteen, it was six years. You go back a little further, it was seven and a half. So the evidence is saying again we're we're on a path that is not sustainable, where I think the sacrifice and those pressures um start to take a toll. That we're not allowed to rise into those ranks carrying our best selves, we have to capitulate to some expectation
1: and model. And
0: I think there's a breaking point in
1: that. Mm. So I want to explore the extracting value comment a little more in depth. What's a good example of how leaders extract value even outside of a merger and acquisition environment? Let's say even, I mean, cause I know that it's, it, it happens in startup environments, it happens in nonprofits, it's everywhere. So what would be a good example of, of how they extract value? yeah I mean we' go down to the root of what an
0: employee relationship is, right so i when we look at it as a transaction, which it is, yes, I will show up on Monday morning and I will do my work, put in my time and and you'll give me you know a paycheck for me investing my my time you'll in, invest the money in in pay so there's a transactional nature and that's that's good and it's natural and it belongs there now, when I need something more, or I set a new expectation, I'm going to make you sacrifice to give me more of what I need, without necessarily asking you, what do you need? So the transaction becomes very one sided. It's not, hey, we need to achieve this more together. What do you need to make that happen? It's just, if you want to survive and stay here and feed your family, you're going to do what you're told. And over time, we continually put those, those pressures down, those demands on other people, without letting them, again, choose to go down that path. We fall into the command with the um, threat of consequence rather than buy-in and belief and how can you grow if you need to be healthy, how do we fit that in to get our objective, but do it in a way that makes sense to you with some understanding. So again, I say extract value because we just go at that resource that we call humans and we take what we need from them and keep demanding more um, without a balance in that equation. We distort the positive and necessary transaction nature that is at the root.
1: Yeah. So, speaking of the resources that is human, here we go. This question, at the risk of uh, asking Mike, (laughs) we may get some hate mail coming in from HR people, but uh, you know, in the book, you're quite critical of HR. I think that it's justified. And I'm going to quote something you said, okay, from the book. You're right. While there's a lot of activity and noise about disruption and transformation within the HR industry, it continues to point in the wrong direction, inwardly focused on the inner workings of the profession, deploying systemic process and ignoring the human part of the resource. Ho, ho. So what's HR doing wrong? But what needs to be fixed here with HR? Boy, there wasn't a lot of warm up to get into this. <laughs> 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 it's yeah. jumping right off the ledge, huh? Hopefully yeah, there's a yeah, yeah. at the bottom. <laughs> um,
0: hey, everybody don't leave, right? It gets good. It's not, it's, <laughs>
1: I'm just glad that this isn't an HR specific podcast because we would be talking to crickets right now.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you know, and it, it's a hard one for me, Marcel, because I have a lot of really good friends that are HR leaders and, and, I do respect them as professionals, and I do know that they are, they are caring people. That's a lot of times what drove them into doing this. When I make these statements about HR, I am not speaking to that individual. I'm not pointing a finger at a person, but I am saying, how do we take a job role and turn it into its own industry? and they call themselves an industry mm. and it's surprising to me and that is well enough leave it alone and it's not a big deal until you realize that there's so much conversation attention money spent within that industry of hr people talking to each other where they say that they you know want to reinvent and they keep renaming themselves and they want a seat at the table and you know all those things that we hear from, you know, Capelli and 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 others that, you know, we've been hearing for decades. And I look at, you know, within an organizational structure, and you look at HR as an operational unit that's pretty much attached to the executive circle in most companies. It's like, I don't know why you're fighting to get to the table. I'm concerned that you never leave the table. I know it sounds crude, but but that's the point that gets to my real belief is, this is now the greatest time of need and opportunity for HR. And I think I'm concerned that it's gonna pass them by. Mm. Because I think the industry of HR has become very myopic and it and operates more as procurement, talent procurement, software procurement, system procurement, learning and development, benign program procurement, you know, through my career with teams had the, you know, probably run over a billion dollars of business. And HR has never had an influence on any of that, on the success or failure or or trouble um, mm-hmm. or correction of that business. They've just been a business function. We need them to be more right now. And that's my big concern is is we do have bright and brilliant people. And you know I mentioned earlier standing next to Claude Silver and why that is such a privilege is first of all, she's a wonderful person and, and been a great friend, but I will point to Claude and her approach to um, leading that business function as a chief people officer of VaynerMedia and she's doing it very differently so there is the the operational necessity and it's a big big job of maintaining the necessary compliance and systems and and payment and benefits and all the the stuff that goes into having employees and that's a big big complex job but when we talk about actually elevating people through their professional journeys or enabling the best people to come through or now we're seeing you know mental and physical health challenges that are accelerating we can't keep doing the same things we're doing and expect different results and i think that i see the hr industry now adopt all this new language and don't change the actions and the behaviors or programs around people development. And that creates a greater gap, which is going to lead to more stress. And I just have a great concern that until they get out into the business, they won't have the impact to affect the health of the people and the productivity and growth of the business.
1: Yeah. So it's not necessarily throw away all of the procurement stuff that they are doing, which is still very much part of their job, but it's adding another layer, which we see Claude doing, which it's no coincidence that Claude is the most recognizable chief people officer in the country, if not the world. I think that that's the aspiration for for HR to go in the direction that Claude Silver has carved that, you know, to which is to care for human beings at work. She still does all the HR stuff. She does all the talent management strategy, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And you know, we mentioned Claude and that's
0: very known to us, our friend, and to many others. I think there's a growing group of very strong voices that that are moving the ball, that that recognize that things need to change. I just don't know that solving it within a group of each other is actually the solution. That until they become part of the bigger business equation, I think they're gonna miss the opportunity. And going to a software conference and and talking to other HR people is probably a behavior that needs to end.
1: Mm, Okay, so let's make this, Part of the conversation, redemptive and empowering to HR. Spin it in a way that they can say, oh, you know what, Mike has a point. We need to change this. What would be your ultimate hope for HR?
0: That the goodness of empowering people and helping them become their best actually finds the path into those people that that relationship becomes engaging and i'll give an example marcel Um, so in a large organization i had a hr representative that was assigned to be the hr partner to my business unit that person was always outside of the business unit you know we were supposed to allow them in which we did and they sat in meetings and you know there was structure put around that how we interact, but they never became part of the business. They didn't know the business. And what happens is that role, you know, kind of just gets tolerated, not embraced, because they aren't bringing any value to the team. It's a reporting channel. Um, and that's really what it represents is it's just a reporting channel back to the compliance group. and. Mm-hmm. The opportunity there is that person actually functions within the business unit with awareness of what's going on. Like I could put together a bunch of different structures as experiments and pilots and and go about that and I think we can make dramatic change very quickly. The real essence to this, Marcel, is to adjoin HR to the periphery of the company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we take what we would look at a bureaucratic or a hierarchical structure and we always go top-down And we say, you know, how can we get that goodness all the way down to the, you know, to the masses of the of the people? And I would say if, if we looked at that more like a web, what's inside in the executive team and then, you know, expanding outward. If we can let them have that goodness of their heart and their belief of doing well for people actually flow out to the edges, then I think HR wins. Mm. And I think HR gains the influence that we need them to have. But they also have to let go of some of the beliefs that they're operating with now. And there's talent acquisition pieces to that. If you don't turn off your ATS system, please go re-toggle it because the barriers that you put up are keeping the best talent out of your company, not bringing it in. Um, I've helped companies go through that. They're just operating with some flawed beliefs that have become best practices over time that I think no longer serve the... the
1: <laughs> Check your inbox, Mike. Let's see how many <laughs> messages you've gotten already.
0: <laughs> I say all this with great hope, Marcel. Yeah. Um. And I know that there are some really brilliant, wonderful people that are out on the edge, Um, but let's not protect it as an industry. Let's empower the people that really want to do good for their organizations by giving them permission to change their
1: minds and find a better way. Mm, Yeah. I want to touch on uh, the employee engagement crisis and which, you know, whenever I speak, I say no. We're stealing in this term employee engagement, which is now so overused and so um, you know just out of date. We're stealing it from HR because it's every leader's responsibility to engage their employees, from the supervisor down on the shop floor all the way to the C-suite. Only 30% of people in the country are engaged at work, and it's much lower around the world, as you know, according to Gallup. So. Let's bring the concepts of believership to employee engagement. If we're going to solve this engagement crisis, what would you say is is the first step? Start to understand
0: the experience people are actually having rather than trying to measure them on the experience you're telling them they're supposed to have. And. We love surveying, right? Because it's easy. I can sit at the table and send a survey out. I don't actually have to walk down the hall and have a conversation, right? We, we hear about opening listening channels and you know, I'm, I'm really hoping we can start to use the ones attached to our head um, as a difference maker. But that's the biggest piece to me, Marcel, is what if we actually ask people what experience they were having instead of measuring them Against the one we're telling them they're supposed to have You know and I think back for me it goes way back. I I can remember being in the car Going to the the cabin that's a Minnesota thing people go to lake homes on the weekends to you know unwind or whatever and I was in the car with my mother and my grandpa and you know my brothers and um kids get a little rambunctious on a, on a road trip in a car. So I think, you know, my brothers and I were kind of probably pushing each other and getting into it. And my grandpa was this old Norwegian, very stoic, said very little. Um, there's a point to this story. <laughs> but, you know, as we were kind of jostling in the back seat, you know, this very stoic, very quiet man swung his head around and, and looked right at me and said, you know, what's your problem? And it shocked me, right? It's like, wow, he never says anything. And, and I get that. What's your problem? And it's interesting that that hangs with me all these decades later. <laughs> but I think that's such an example of what goes on inside companies as we're asking employees about what experience they're having. What is your problem? Instead of what is the problem? what's the problem going on in the organization that you as an employee are experiencing that we can understand and listen to and perhaps address rather than we've told you what it's supposed to look like what you're supposed to do what you're supposed to be feeling what you're supposed to be experiencing if you're not doing that what's your problem something's wrong with you because we have orchestrated it in this way, and 30% of the people are saying this is fine. What's wrong with you, 70%? Why can't you be more like the 30% instead of, hey, you majority, what's the problem? Maybe it's our problem, maybe it's something we can solve. So, in many ways, I think we ask the wrong questions.
1: Hmm. What I get out of that is that we don't listen enough as leaders, maybe listening with the intent on acting on your listening, so it's compassionate listening. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I absolutely agree that
0: listening is a skill that I can improve today and be better at tomorrow, and I can probably double that improvement the next day. Um, It's one of the great skills I think we can all um, do better at, but understanding the intent of the questions we're asking is what I think you're speaking to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, that would be a good pause and go back and take a look at, do we need to tweak that? Mm. Um, If we were looking at process and everybody's the same and how we orchestrate business and make it equal for all things, then we would ask questions in a certain way with a belief behind that of, How can we get everybody to comply with the thing that we're professing? And if that's not working right now, perhaps we need to review that priority. And that's, I don't know, a pretty good descriptor of what humans first means too also, right? Is don't change everything, but if there's three priorities, what does it look like if humans, what if it looks like if the people and who they are and how they're feeling, how they're engaging, is the first priority. Do we ask those questions differently? Does that change the intent of what we can then do with that information?
1: Hmm. Wow, this is all pointing to what I think, in your book, you uh, propose as the solution to fuel the success of companies over the next decade and that is human relationships. I know it sounds you know, like a no-brainer, of course, but to get there, you say that we gotta fix the selection process of leaders. So in other words, we're hiring and promoting the wrong leaders, right, Mike? I think that's what your argument is. It is. And, and, and that's in large part due to our false belief about what makes a good leader. Have we been wrong this whole time? I don't believe that
0: in the fluid business environment that we're in today, Marcel, where, you know, and change is going to come more rapidly and be more significant than any time in the future. I don't think that commanding the troops, the way we've set leadership up today and identified as that power of authority is going to be able to bring people along at the rate of influence that we need leaders to do. And I say that where leaders now, instead of being great commanders, have to become great navigators hmm. because we're in a very fluid system. Um, it's no longer a still pond. It's a river. The flow is greater. The rapids are ahead. And we need to learn how to have people find self leadership, willfully attach themselves and commit and navigate those waters together. And I think that's very different than where we've been in the past, Um, which leads to a lot of things. You know, it breaks down a lot of models. We've all, you know, come to believe that. Think tanks can be a wonderful thing that's where we get our wisdom and you know thank goodness for those people that and and now we look at think tanks are kind of becoming swamps right you can't sit and protect the wisdom of the past and use it as a measurement for the current state or the future state. We have to get fresh flow, fresh water, fresh ideas moving, and people have more information than they ever had, so they're choices are greater and with greater choice diminishes the value of command. That leadership is actually what people will believe in and attach themselves and commit to rather than how well they'll follow the command that's given them. And that's a big change generationally. Um, So the future is bright and it's exciting you know, I think this is like the best time ever to be alive, but we'll struggle if we try to bring the old paradigm forward.
1: So we're right back to belief system. Mm-hmm. And we have to um, pivot from the belief system that we've been stuck in as long as, uh, as the industrial age has been around and people are still subscribing to that philosophy. So how do we pivot?
0: it's not one big brush stroke that's gonna change everything. I, I think that true transformation is a consecutive series of a lot of tweaks that add up to new habits over time. And I think that's the approach. And so starting at the basis, how do we identify a leader? What does that look like? And and the models that we have in place, the mythology that we're following how do we test those traits what are the beliefs in how a leader acts and looks and how they test out in strength finder and how they we've put a um, belief together over time that excludes so many great people Mm. if we hear and we know that we you know companies put they invest and they put a lot of effort into diversity and inclusion. Well, if you look at how they would define a leader and what that job description looks like and what tests they use and aptitude they expect to get to a leader, it's a pretty exclusive little, you know, tight ball that they've put together that very few people will fit into. So if we're saying diversity and inclusion, you know i think we start with this belief that's already exclusive and it's very biased to historic measures and so that's one tweak is what does the leader look like and boy you know you think of when i say history you know let's just take a look at the bureaucratic system that was you know kind of influenced by max weber back in the late 1800s right so the turn of the of a century ago the 19th century 20th century that becomes the standard companies move and build around that and then this brilliant guy drucker comes around 1954 and puts his first book out there which is like hierarchy 2.0 right it's a big upgrade on the past 70 years it's a good thing and you know we still live with that belief that that's the best model of leadership and its management and we have over trained on management skills and we've under trained on our understanding development of leadership and they're two different skills and we identify those that can perform that management orchestration the best and we've overweighted that difference between. Management and leadership—that's our opportunity—is to change our minds about what that looks like. Hmm. You know, let me give a time reference on that. So, 1954, I mentioned Drucker, right? And tell a little story. So, the the next year, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus in Alabama, which then, you know, led to that whole movement where I think one of the great leaders of all time surfaced through that whole piece, right? Martin Luther King taught us a lot about leadership. There has been progression against those efforts since that day in Alabama. That was a year after Drucker put this piece in place that we still believe is the the pinnacle. At the time, we were still printing and delivering um, manuals to the uh, rotary phones and many people and not Completely urban areas. Many people in all over the country were still on party lines. Um, so we're operating these new challenges, this new growth, these new waves of business, the technological um, changes that are coming rapidly with a belief system that is stuck back in the rotary phone era. And wow. I believe we can do better.
1: Hmm. Mike, I'm going to switch uh, gears and, you know, people know you as this deep, thoughtful guy that has these ideas. And sometimes you, uh, you get philosophical and you get, you get deep, and, and yet people don't know that there's a side of Mike Vacanti that very few, at least in the, in the public space doing podcasts, I get to know you as a personal friend, so I get to see other sides of you. And one of those sides is that you're a pretty funny guy. You have some humor, and i want to bring that out out of you. And uh, so the context of bringing out your humor is actually in the form of a story that you shared with me. And I wish it made the book, but it didn't. But you shared this with me over the phone the other day that takes you back to your days in the corporate grind. And you kind of harp on best practice and how sometimes best practice gets in the way of what you call best possibility, and you have a story a funny story you want to share that about how you and your team sat in a conference call and you basically you had to go through the motions of this call because of its best practice, and you decided we're gonna have some fun with this
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for bringing that up I mean yeah there there is a lighter side I like to play I like to have fun and Given the opportunity, people will amaze us and so if we create an environment where people are 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 bringing their good energy, they'll do better and and so you know through one of the mergers and acquisitions, Fujitsu was actually the company that bought us and and they had a, a, you know very strong methods to everything um, and how they manage calls and sales and how we manage projects and change management and you know, we all had to learn methods on how to do each thing. Well, we had a, a team that was performing really, really well. And part of the best practice that was being forced on us now was to do this upstream reporting. And it was really a justification of should we keep investing in your initiatives? And so there was some assessment and gamesmanship to it. But what happened is as soon as somebody would really honestly start to express what was going on and kind of looking for buy-in from the executives. It, it always took the conversation down a road that, you know, we were in there for a longer period of time and the person ended up kind of feeling bad about themselves or embarrassed. They didn't have the answer. And, and so we would tease each other about that offside <laughs> of the call. And finally, I, I told my team, it's like, we need to have some fun with this. So let's set up here's the actual goal to these calls. Like we're doing great business. This is kind of a distraction. It's just a checkpoint. It's really not influencing the business. So the new objective for these calls, we had to sit at a table together and it was conferencing in from the executives across the country and across all over the world. The goal of this call is what I would ask the team and and they would laugh and they would all say, to end the call. It's like exactly. So, <laughs> now the challenge is that each of you has to find the best brevity to get to just a one line sentence of what's going on, polish it up, and see how fast you can pass it on to the next person. And um, we got really good at it. It kind of became an exercise and we would get off that call and we'd be laughing, we'd be teasing each other about, you know, who went down a rabbit hole. and. Um, so it was not influencing or helping us conduct business, it was just part of best practice, a management structure that was put into place. Yeah. So the best thing to do is we had to participate, but let's goof around and have some fun with it and let's not let it distract us, let's just have some fun with this mandatory thing. Um, And I think best practices becomes a lot like that, Marcel. Oftentimes we do it because it's been a selected way to do something and we're just telling people it's the best practice because we don't want questions. Mm -hmm. Instead of how could we do it better? How can we seek best possibilities? And it's such a common term, right? Um, I was asked to submit a speaker profile or respond to a, a, a speaking inquiry and they sent me, the list and said, these are the 11 best practices we're going to be discussing on this one topic, so pick one of those that you would like to talk to. I paused just like that and how do I throw this back? And, but 11 best practices, find one you want to talk to and we're going to score you if you can do that. Well, the reality is if there's 11, then there really aren't any, are there? Right. If it's best, wouldn't it be one? Like if it's three, you don't have a best practice. Eleven is absurd, but pick one and then go deep on that. It's, so I, I chose not to respond to that. But I think we do that in business a lot. It's like, well, tell me the best practices for that. And we teach it because it's compliant, it is consistent,
1: but it's not necessarily best. Mm. I just love that, that story that uh, you guys chose to play with the whole going through the motions by choosing to, let's play this game. And the, the, the object of the game is to end the call. Yeah. And you were as brief as possible in your responses.
0: Yeah, we set a clear objective. What's the objective? Let it end. Make it end.
1: <laughs> let's put the book aside a little bit, Mike, and, and touch on Humans First Club. So in your wildest dreams, did you ever think it would reach this magnitude?
0: No, I didn't. I mean, I, I heard the call from people that there was a hunger for this, that there was this belief that we can do better. And there's so many ideas and theories and things I was reading and research I was looking at and some brilliant thinking. And the idea of Marcel was just, let's just get people in the room and ask them what's going on. You know, I talked about listening channels, but well, what if we use the ones attached to our head? What would that yield? And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have some really amazing people near me, with me to start along that journey. You know, the first one in New York, the second one in Seattle, where Renee Smith participated, and I learned so much from Renee. And, you know, she ended up introducing me to, to you, thankfully. Um, coming out of that. And then we were got to be together in, in LA and uh, in Chattanooga. But it's, you know, it's built around all of these really loving, caring people who believe we can do better than we're doing today that operate with, with hope and, and compassion. And I was willing to let it fizzle or fall aside if that was its fate or be willing to step in and continue to put the effort in to serve it as it grew. And um, I didn't know where it would go. I did make a decision not to turn it into a business, to let it be something that we could all kind of share and participate and bring into our lives and bring into the lives of others. But now that it's coming you know, into its second year, it's expanding faster than I would have anticipated, which is, you know, making me rethink and expand my thinking around it because I want to continue to let go, let it multiply and, and keep putting it in the hands of, of more people.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I'm gonna to touch on where it's going next, but let me jump in and have you uh, kind of reflect on all of the events. How many of you had so far, Mike? There were 11 events between October of 18 and November 19. Okay, so of all those events and everything that has happened, I saw breakthroughs uh, in Chattanooga, both LA and Chattanooga, I saw people shift. So, of all those experiences, is there a moment for you that really sticks out?
0: You know, in each one unto itself, there there were those moments of, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. And I'm not sure why I'm surprised that it repeated 11 times. Mm. And because we didn't take a roadshow out, Marcel, right? I mean, each event had a unique group of people attending in, in those cities, which you know, a myriad of backgrounds and we had different speakers at each one that were in, infusing the dialogue to, to kind of get things moving. They were facilitated differently. We used even different formats for those discussions and and every time people came away sharing an unbelievable amount of energy, there were tears, but the number of people that have come away saying it was life-changing is, it it still strikes me as kind of amazing. Really. I mean, it's beautiful, but each time was that moment in the event or those moments in the event where the energy was just at that level where people were captivated and engaged and, and people started sharing what, you know, was kind of holding them back or what they have been holding inside for a long time. And, and we learned from each other and um, bonds were built, and that's helped build community and relationships. And, you know, there really is love flowing through that, Marcel, and it's starting to expand.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, things I remember from the Chattanooga one was the, you know, there were a couple of people in there that they came in with the posturing and the posing, thinking that this is the norm for how you conduct yourself. You know, you put on the mask, as you walk in your work establishment. And we turned on the light for them to to realize, whoa, no, I can be myself. I can be authentic. I can be real. And they can bring that part of me to work every day. And so that's what I saw people's lights go on and to reimagine the possibilities of what where it could be like. Because so many of us get up in the morning and we compartmentalize our lives. We, you know, we, we have our personal home life existence where we're parents and, and spouses and community leaders, church leaders, et cetera. But hey, Monday morning rolls around, you better not be that person, right? And so really what you're doing, you're being a fake version of yourself. And I think Humans First Club, the Chattanooga experience for me is people, realized i don't have to be that person so donna christian right she
0: shared a lot and she's actually you know recorded a testimonial video that you know she's just it's beautiful what she's able to express but she was one saying oh it sounds interesting but i don't know if that's really for me you know i'm an executive i i've got a radio show i do all these things that you know i'm i'm not really certain And she's one that walked away and she said, it changed my life, it changed my life for my family, probably our community. And we have seriously dozens of people now that have come away with those experiences. But she shares that I knew that what I had experienced in my career wasn't quite right, that there was some oppression to that she was feeling. But she always felt that she had to apologize for feeling that way. Something must be wrong with her not what's going on and mm-hmm. and then when everybody stepped up and shared their story and infused the 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 ideas that we did before the open dialogue she realized that no it's not me i don't i can be unapologetically myself and step into my strength and show up as the best me rather than a smaller version of of somebody else right so instead of being one of them i can be the best of me and you know that has been really consistent and it's you know it's amazing marcel because it's people 20 years old to 70 years old and it's men and women and all races and you know all faiths and different roles and we walk into those rooms and nobody really asks so what do you do it's more about how are you, who are you, who are you, not what do you do, what's your role, what's your title, you know, do I or curtsy now or do I, you know, how do, we, how do we interact? It's just like, hey, how are you, how are you feeling and what's your experience? And um, the hunger for that is really coming up. You know, there was one week last month where I got three calls, had the conversations, Invited in to do an event in um, Pakistan, Iran, and Dubai all in the same week. It just blows me away, right? Uh, So we're going to find a way to serve those communities and bring us all together. There's channels being created and there's bridges being built. And it's just like the most amazing, most rewarding, fun, crazy experiment I've ever
1: Imagine. Mm. Mm. Wow! So you mentioned that's amazing. You mentioned those Middle East uh, locations, Mike. So what what else is in store for Humans First Club? What's next for you?
0: You know, there's events pretty much every month. Kicking off um, in February, um, we'll be out in San Diego with with uh, Osland Brook Arrow and Gary Ridge um, in San Diego on February 13th. And then March 11th will be in Austin, Texas. Um, Gary Turner will be over here from London. He's coming across the pond and, and we'll have a, a big group de- together down in uh, Texas. And then it moves into some other cities. We'll be in, in Toronto and it looks like the planning now is to be in India and Australia through the year. We'll be in Dublin probably around that first week in, the last week in March, first week in April. Looks like the first week in April now. There'll be tour through other European cities because the demand has been so high. So we'll kind of place them in areas where, where people can travel easily to. But there'll be another three or four um, UK events. And for the first time, we're gonna have a two-day leadership retreat in the countryside in England, May 6th and seventh, that's an open invitation. Um, it can host about 80 at Max. Um, there's already 20 plus that are that are signed up. You know these are set up as really affordable, um, accessible um, events so Really listening to the demand and um, trying to serve that and letting it expand and, and you know let everybody come in and take leadership and let it go in the direction that it's supposed to go without being prescriptive or orchestrating that. Um, as long as I can stay out of the way, I think
1: everything will be just fine. <laughs> Even if you're in the way, Mike, I think things will still be fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
1: Mike, so before we wrap up with our two final questions, I got to throw this in. So yesterday, I saw your latest LinkedIn video post. And I'm just going to say what you did, but uh, you tell the story because what I want to do is I want to get our listeners to go on that thread and comment. And and basically, you turn your your shirt inside out. So explain what that's about.
0: Yeah, I I think first is, you know thanks for pointing out that piece because it um you know i know i kind of like when i get deep in the material marcel i kind of get going right my energy and so if you know if you were sitting there at any time during this conversation thinking shut up like you're (laughs) it's like i get it and you can actually say that to me i invite that in because this should be an open discussion and you know there is this playfulness and this goofiness is how can we take these things that are are opportunities for us to express ourselves our best and, and, and make them simple and actionable. And so there'd been a lot of that, you know, how is personal growth? How can I, going into 2020, step into what I wanna do and be my best? And, and it occurred to me that, you know, for this year, 2020, it's really gonna be living inside out for me. It's gonna be my intent. You know, I've been like a year and a half now on this, you know, morning meditation journey of of lift others, and I don't want to discard that. But living inside out is kind of this new theme I'm adopting. And so I woke up yesterday morning and thought I, I kind of want to illustrate this and invite people in to see. You know, it's like a, a crazy test. How crazy am I? And so I put my sweatshirt on inside out and recorded a short video and said, you know, my intent is to live inside out if this resonates with you at all and I, you know, showed the tag on the shirt and and I said, please just put a picture in the comments. Instead of a New Year's resolution, what if we just attempt to kind of shift our focus a little bit and, you know, it, it got some play and, and and I think it's something that will continue to grow, that Living Inside Out will be something that I focus on this year and I, you know, I want it to invite other people to, to play along, Let's have some fun with it.
1: It just shows the real you and it uh, brought a smile to my face, Mike, because you are spearheading this movement where people can just be human and uh, and that's a part of who you are. You just decided, hey, I'm going to be playful here. Um, it's not a marketing strategy. No, no. It really is. It's just
0: like, let's have some fun together. Yeah. You know, just like the objective is to end the meeting. Let's just have some fun with that. Um, make yeah. that the challenge. and And here is, Let's find a way to feel better and improve our days. And so let's just be playful about that. And yeah. I just want to go back to that book a little bit because it. I wrote this as volume one, the experience because I, like I have no interest in being right, but I have a great interest in all of us becoming better. And this book, the experience is just to say, here was my journey to get to this way of thinking here's what those elements look like and how I see and approach business now based on those experiences. And then here's what I'm doing personally to try to improve the situation. And And I lay that out because it's really an invite for everybody to participate in volume two, the discovery. Mm. If you disagree with this, I would love for you to write that down and share that. and And maybe that's a, Paragraph or a chapter in the next book a, you know paragraph page chapter in the next book i I want to invite all those different opinions and experiences in if it agrees how if you have ideas, share those and we'll compile that into volume two yeah and call it discovery um, and just I want to go along this journey with people because all of you are helping me learn at an accelerated rate that only shows what's possible if A guy you know the most gray-haired small kid on the planet can learn this much then it's possible for everybody
1: (laughs) what an enlightening conversation Mike we bring it home with two questions personally what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know I love to be joyful
0: and look at the bright side of things right because I, I just have a belief in what's possible that we can do better but what what tugs at my heartstrings right now, Marcel, is I'm in conversations a lot, and I see people that are struggling. That you know we have a lot of pain out there around us, and I feel that. So a lot of what I'm trying to explore and bring people together to to bring our best ideas and is let's be helpful. We can heal some of this pain. But we have to be intentional about how we address it. And just telling them to shape up and it will all be better is not working anymore. Mm.
1: Mm. And you end the conversation your way, Mike, with any closing statement you'd like, uh, takeaway. What would you like people to walk away with today?
0: We live in a really, really fast world right now. And, you know, it is accelerating. There's going to be explosive technology, things happening around us. And please give yourself permission to pause, be a little bit quiet, surround yourself with people that are feeding you the good stuff, and give yourself permission to step away from those that are not. Feeding you the good stuff. Um, we all have the choice of what fuel we put in our tank. Invest in those relationships that are really filling your tank because you deserve that. That's my hope. That's how I've entered this new year, and and
1: um, that's my wish. The book is called Believership: The Superpower Beyond Leadership, Volume One: The Experience. He is. Mike Vacanti, if people want to connect with you, (laughs) including those irate HR people, possibly, what's the best place that they can do that?
0: Yeah. So for all of you HR people that didn't like this, I'm coming up with a new email address for you. (laughs) (laughs) MJVacanti.com is my website. There's also a form to contact me on humansfirst.club. Find me there. I'm, accessible and available on social media and would love to engage LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter also. And then Mike at MJVacanti.com is my email. And it really is about having conversations. I learn from you all and I I invite that engagement.
1: It's been a pleasure, my friend, as always. So I'm gonna turn my shirt inside out in another hour or so and post (laughs) my comment. And listeners, you do the same. Go to Mike's LinkedIn, look for the comment at the top of his updates, and let's do this. Mike, I know I'll be talking to you soon again, so thanks for joining us.
0: It's an honor and a pleasure,
1: Marcel. Thank you for having me. It's always great to catch up with my friend, Mike Vacanti. Hope you enjoyed that episode. You know, the world has changed, but leadership unfortunately hasn't. So I want to honor Mike by reading straight from his book on page nine in the chapter that's called Leadership is Not Enough. Our ability to understand the world has evolved in all areas of life, science and business. From deep space to ocean floor to the tiniest cells in our bodies and floating particles we breathe, how our minds and bodies work, we have knowledge and choices as never before, including instantaneous access to global information previously requiring decades to amass only a small portion. It's a different world says Mike. Although every area of life has been affected, has evolved to a new state, our approach to leadership remains rigidly beholden to the centuries-old model. Truly baffling, those are Mike's words. Today, we are awakening to realities that we're in a whole new paradigm, a new era that is more complex, disruptive, and very different from previous eras. Change is more significant and accelerating. We will see greater shifts in the next five years than the previous 20. And he ends the paragraph with this. As businesses race to catch up to this rapid transformation, we continue to force our limiting beliefs, behavior preferences, Our biases and burdens on people in the workplace resisting the inevitable. Our belief in leadership models must change now. Thanks for joining us, Love and Action Nation. I'm grateful that you are here. If this episode resonated with you in any way, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and share this show with your friends and coworkers. and. If you've missed an episode, simply go to my website, marcellschwantes.com, and click on the Love in Action podcast tab, or you can find Love in Action on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, don't forget, Love in Action, it's what will truly set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, Love & Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you wanna bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities, whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at Marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M A R C E L, at loveinaction.club.